Welcome to If You Love This Planet. I'm Dr. Helen Caldicott, and in this program we talk about the greatest medical and environmental threats to all life, such as nuclear weapons and nuclear power, global warming, ozone depletion, toxic pollution, deforestation, and many other social and political issues that relate to global well-being. So if you love this planet, keep listening. Hello and welcome to If You Love This Planet. My special guest today is author and filmmaker Helena Norberg-Hodge. Helena is the founder and director of the International Society for Ecology and Culture, a non-profit organisation whose mission is to promote systemic solutions to today's social and environmental crises. Helena Norberg-Hodge is a pioneer of the new economy movement and has been promoting an economics of personal, social and ecological well-being for more than 30 years. Trained in linguistics, she's given public lectures in seven languages and has appeared on broadcast, print and online media worldwide, including MSNBC, The London Times, The Sydney Morning Herald and The Guardian. Her groundbreaking work in Ladakh, or Little Tibet, earned her the Right Livelihood Award or Alternative Nobel Prize, and her book Ancient Futures, along with a film of the same title, has been translated into more than 40 languages. She is the 2012 recipient of the Tokyo-based Goy Peace Award for her pioneering work in the new economy movement to promote a more sustainable and equitable world. Other recipients are Bill Gates, Deepak Chopra, James Lovelock and Oscar Arias. So she uh, is a very important person and I welcome you, Helena, to If You Love This Planet. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Now, I think for um, baseline knowledge, we need to go back to when you went to Ladakh. Um, How old were you? How long did you live there? And what was the situation when you first went there? Well, I was... 30 or 31, and I was living in Paris, and I had studied languages, and at that time, I guess I spoke six languages, and I had seen a lot of the world, I thought, <laughs> you know. And, and you're Swedish, so of course, you're Swedish. I'm originally Swedish, yes. and with my father half English and my mother half German, so I had family in those three countries, and mm-hmm. I had studied in those three countries. And I, but I had also been to remote parts of the world, um, to what's, you know, Chiapas, what, you know, where the Zapatistas are now and been fascinated by them. And I had studied Spanish in Mexico and so on. And But anyway, so I almost didn't go to Ladakh. I was asked to go as part of a film team mm-hmm. to do a documentary about this um, completely unknown part of Tibet that belonged politically to India and that had been sealed off for political reasons. Mm-hmm. So they had not really had contact with the Western world, um, in the in the sort of colonial era, the British passed through a bit, you know, on the trade routes. But it was a very remote area with small villages scattered in the desert. And so, essentially, they had been allowed to develop according to their own needs and values for, for a couple of thousand years. And then in the modern era, they were sealed off for political reasons because the Indians were worried about 
spying and movement in from China on the one side and Pakistan on the other side. When it was thrown open, I came out as one of the first foreigners with this film team, and I was due to stay for six weeks, but I was absolutely blown away by this amazing culture and people. It was it was really a remarkable place with people who emanated this sort of joy and and peace, but also laughter and humor and it felt also like a culture where the balance between male and female was so much better than in any other part of the world. It was remarkable also to see these large, beautiful houses Mm. Um, beautiful architecture, really? Really? Uh, very similar to the Hopi Indian architecture, but more elaborate and more beautiful. Mm. Um, you know, adobe brick with wooden carved balconies and windows, and and so and also to find you know no sign of hunger, no nor obesity for that matter. People were slim and wiry and extremely healthy looking. But above all, you know, they seemed the happiest people I'd ever met. So when the filming was finished, I had fallen in love with the place and decided to stay on to work on the language. It had not been written down. It was an ancient dialect of Tibetan, you know, closer to the written Tibetan than modern central Tibetan. And uh, I did learn to speak the language fluently in the first half year. And had this excuse, you know, of um, spending a lot of time there to study the language. So in the first two years, I actually was out there and working with them. Uh, I went to study classical Tibetan with the Tibetan refugees. I was out in that part of the world for two years. And then for the next sort of 15 years, I spent roughly half of every year there. Wow, 15 years. In recent years. In recent years, I've still been going back, but for shorter periods, more like three months. Yeah. And I, you know, I suppose the the most important thing for me about all of this is the absolute conviction that we could live differently. That it, you know, I'm not coming from sort of a pie in the sky theory about it. I've seen that it's possible to um, have a way of life that is incredibly rich and comfortable mm. um, without the devastating impact that we're now having through this modern corporate consumer culture. And I also got a bird's eye view of how this global corporate economy operates and why it is decimating cultures around the world. I saw that you know, the one area where I guess I'm sort of an expert is to understand the psychology of the cultural destruction that we're witnessing. Because, um, am I monologuing you too much now, Helen? No, <laughs> I like it. I don't have to ask you any questions. You're okay. just <laughs> going ahead like an essay. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'll interrupt okay. if I need to. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I mean, the I suppose the most, yeah, the thing that I, you know, would like to share more than anything is this understanding of the psychological dimension. Mm. And I did find people and really did get to know them intimately mm. that had this highest self-esteem of any people I'd encountered. Mm. I mean, I do document all of this in this book, Ancient Futures, you know, but in greater detail. But anyway, I there just wasn't uh, the same sense of self-doubt there was also 
Oh, how, I'm trying to think of specific examples. I mean, the one that pops to mind right now is seeing, you know, teenage boys, you know, age 13, cooing over a little baby exactly mm. in the same way that a granny would. Yeah. There was no sense that this wasn't cool and that I shouldn't be doing this. There wasn't this um, image of who you're meant to be as a man plastered mm. onto you that creates such insecurity. And then I witnessed how those very same young people developed those complexes. Really? And how role models became literally, literally Barbie doll and Rambo. And I saw young girls and boys respond to those images. And so the key, you know, what I've always said is, if these cultures consisted only of adults who have grown up in an environment with strong extended families and communities, deep self-esteem, accepting themselves as they are in their unique and real individualism, and growing up to become secure adults, we would not see this cultural destruction. Absolutely certain. Well, then, how did they how did they respond to Rambo and Barbie dolls? That was because they got television and electricity, and so into their houses was piped the culture of the West, right? And corporate that's right. culture. That, that's right. And yeah. I think it's so important that we see that you and I didn't spread that culture. You know, it was it's spread by economic forces and institutions that by inserting those images create the insecurity that is the bedrock of consumerism. Well, I'm going to interrupt here because there's a man called Jerry Mander who wrote a book, In the Absence of the Sacred, and he wrote about the Inuits or the Eskimos who used to, you know, dry their fish and braid their leather and 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 yeah. and go and hunt and, and everything and they were a society like the one you described in in Bhutan uh, not Bhutan in, in Ladakh. Ladakh and in Bhutan yes yeah. and and then they got then they got electricity and my god the old yeah. women started praying for the people in Dallas that horrible yeah. soap opera thing and they lost their culture and then the young people migrated away to cities where That's they right. could see you know their rambos and their barbie dolls and all the rest so it's the introduction of electricity actually and then television which i think is the worst influence that's ever happened to the human yeah. race um into these communities yeah. But I also have to say, by the way, I've worked closely with Jerry over the last 20 years because I hope to start this forum on globalization. Yes. We worked on that together. And, and our books, My Ancient Futures and In the Absence of the Sacred, are very parallel. You know, mine being a deeper case study and his being covering the broader issues. And mm. But I would add, you see, that I have now found that in the most remote parts of the world, like if I go to the really remote parts of the nomads on the Tibetan plateau, mm. or in past years I worked in Bhutan over a five-year period. Where is Bhutan? Bhutan is a kingdom in the Himalayas, which a little bit like Ladakh, or mm. in fact, very similar story, was also sealed off. Mm. A kingdom where the king decided to keep it protected, and where even today... Very few tourists are allowed in, and they mm. have to pay a high price. And uh, so Ladakh and Bhutan are very similar situations, both of them in the Himalayas, mm. to a great extent protected by the high mountains. Mm. And also, I think, to a great extent, well, the the important thing about both of them is that they weren't colonized. 
you know, when we when we look back today, or not look back, when we look at so many parts of the world, people believe that they're looking at tradition. Mm. They're mm. looking at cultures that for hundreds of years were invaded by missionaries and colonial forces. Mm. Mm. And so I, you know, and the sad thing is that with those invasions, the both the community fabric, the self-respect, mm. and their ability to survive in a self-reliant way were broken down. Mm. You know, they were pulled off the land to grow for themselves, to grow on huge cotton plantations mm. or tea plantations. And so that rupturing is, is terrible. But what I wanted to say, too, is that even without television, by word of mouth, these images are are spreading across the world. So even when the television hasn't yet arrived, mm. people are developing the sense that their way of life is backward and primitive and that this other culture is superior. And for young children, what I've witnessed in Ladakh in the early stages was tourists coming in and spending, say, $100 a day. That is a bit like a Martian flying into Australia and spending every day $100,000. Now imagine what our children would say to us if we said, don't don't imitate the Martians, just stay here and do your job, you know, work 60 hours a week and you'll earn, you know, whatever it is. The Martians, the tourists that came to Ladakh gave the impression of doing no work and of having $100,000 a day to spend. The reason for that is that the money that they had in the traditional culture was absolutely minimal, Mm. just for luxuries from far away. They didn't have a mortgage. They didn't have to pay for health care. They didn't have to pay for water. They didn't have to pay for their food. So the money that was there was just for essentially a trade in luxuries. So the value of the money was completely different. And this is this is part of what we really need to understand to understand the psychological changes that are going on. The other thing that also was so clear was that the reason why the young go to the city is because Western-style schooling trains them for an urban job in a fossil fuel corporate economy. This Western-style schooling is very much part of the problem. Once they've gone through that, they have no skills, they have no knowledge of how to do anything else Mm. but those jobs that are available in the city. Now, all of this, you know, doesn't mean that our choice is, you know, either you stay exactly as you were, you know, completely traditional working on the land, or you go into a big uh, fossil-fueled urban sprawl where the unemployment pressures are so great that we literally have 90% not managing. You know, 90% end up as failures. And you'll have, you know, 2,000 college graduates applying for a job in the government as a cleaner. That kind of thing is what's going on in Ladakh right now. Oh, really, in Ladakh? Yeah. Really? So it's been totally decimated. Well, you know, it's, totally decimated, you can't say, and as long as the land lives and as long as people are alive, I suppose I wouldn't ever think of totally decimated, Mm. but certainly the pressures are huge. Mm. The unemployment is huge. So it's education. It's it's Western-style education that's done it, Helena. Well, it's it's actually what we have to, I would say, if you isolate the key things to look at, 
We've got to look at the Western style schooling, which, by the way, is all the time being adjusted to suit the needs of giant corporations. Mm. Prime ministers around the world are constantly saying in Australia as well, we've got to change our education system so we can be competitive in the global world, in the global economy. And that means so that we can suit the needs of the global corporations, which are also subsidized and supported by our government. It's a crazy, crazy mad thing. And I think if you know, if people could just step back and look at the bigger picture for a short time, there's a certain pattern that becomes very clear. And key elements are, yes, the schooling, but the media, as we were saying earlier, is an absolutely you know, enormous mm. slice of this very destructive pie. And also what's happening to science. Science, by and large, now is funded by large corporate interests. Yep. Yep. And we had in Scandinavia, you know, where I grew up, we had... For quite a while, we had a fair amount of money from government and in Australia as well, you know, in the public interest. Yeah. But as the banks and corporations are running the show, you know, we have almost no money left. For Is that honest so? Support. Is that so in, yeah. in Scandinavia? Because Even in you Scandinavia. are a very socialistic sort of communities where healthcare was free and education was free, well, paid for by the tax dollars. And, yes. And... So is that changing now in Scandinavia, Absolutely. Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. Clearly changing, and not yet as bad as in America, of course. But, of course, all the time, the the handing over of power to, gov- to banks and corporations by government is a disaster. And now we're seeing, you know, credit agencies telling countries, you know, like Greece, you know, you can't afford to look after your people. You've got to pay back the debt to the bank. So we really need to look at that bigger picture of what's happening to the corporations, the banks being at the very center of that corporate control of our governments, of our media, of our science, of our education. Now, having said that, you know, a lot of people say, oh, God, you know, they just give up. For me, it's very empowering, I guess, because I know, having lived and worked with people from many different cultures, who still have roots in a different culture, who are still not completely absorbed in this urban consumer culture. And I, and the knowledge that the real economy is the natural world, that the real economy for everything we need, from our food to our shoes to our computers, comes from the natural world, and that there is a path, an economic path, that we could take right now that could systemically address these problems. That knowledge is what makes me, you know, sort of keeps me going. Well, I'm, inter- I, I'm interviewing Helena Norberg-Hodge, who's Scandinavian-Swedish and a filmmaker who is really a pioneer in, in the new economy in a way. So, Helena, you've outlined the problems that we're all facing. So here am I. I live in a little fishing village in, in Australia with a population of about 1,200 people. Um, and I do grow my own vegetables, uh, but I, uh, I still have to buy rice and flour and uh, condiments and meat, although um, I've got um, water at the bottom of my garden, which is an inlet from the sea where I could fish if I wanted to. I've got rabbits running around. If I had a little... Um, rifle I could shoot the rabbits and eat rabbits um, 
and become, I suppose, I, I suppose bottom line I could become self-sufficient in food, but I'm lucky I've got, I've got land where I could grow, grow food, um, but I still have to, I can't walk into town, it's too far. I suppose I could ride a bike, but the hills are steep and I'm 74. Um, so what I'm asking you is for the average person now in Australia or in the United States, people are listening to this program in the United States, with a small plot of land or maybe no land, how are we to proceed, Helen, to get out of this dreadful, dreadful bind that we're in where we see the earth being destroyed before our very eyes and the banks controlling everything, including our governments? Well, I, I basically have been advocating a sort of a two-structured a two path. And, and the number one thing is that, you know, number one thing is I ask people to just step back and be willing to study how this system operates in order to understand how we could be more strategic. One of the ways that the corporations have succeeded in undermining millions and millions of people who have wanted to live more sustainably and who did not want this consumer culture, didn't want nuclear power. The way, one of the key ways has been to, to point to the individual consumer, to the isolated individual as being the only way to do something. And that meant, you know, you recycle your little plastic bags, you know, you drive your car less, you do this. In the meanwhile... Governments have been eating up our taxes. We are subsidizing the plastic bags. We're subsidizing the nuclear power. This is not just about externalities that, on top of everything else, that nuclear waste and the plastic waste create havoc with the environment, and then again our taxes have to be used to clean it up. This is about the upfront investment. So while we're being told to use less energy and less plastic, we are being pushed into a way of life where we cannot escape using more. So now that can make it sound, oh, it's so big, we can't change it. Well, the reason why we're not thinking of how to change it is because the corporations have succeeded in pointing only to us as individual consumers rather than us maintaining the knowledge. We are also voters, members of a society. We, if, we, if we vote only with our dollar, that means poor people don't have a vote. It means the multi-millionaires have more votes and the poor people have no votes. We've got to remember that we're part of a society. And so one of the things is to change the I to a we. Now, so that means that we do need to think about our political choices. And there we have to, if we study it a little bit, we'll have to realize that the choices we have about these vitally important issues are not being spelled out either by the left or the right. So we've got to look deeper and more broadly than what's being offered us and build up a movement for a new economy. That is beginning to happen. If people would look at some of the literature that we have on our website, can I mention the website? Yes, please. It's theeconomicsofhappiness.org. Theeconomicsofhappiness.org yes. is all one word. And there we have lots of materials and links to organizations, a lot of them in America because our nonprofit is in the U.S. And so there's a lot that you can link up to, that you can support, that you can learn from to help build up this movement. The Occupy movement was a huge step in that direction, but it needs to be linked to the anti-nuclear, to the environmental, to the 
anyone who is devoting time to protect dolphins, to protect uh, factory animals, any... Um, you mean we all need the, to work together, maybe under one political party, the Green Party. Is that what you're really advocating, Helena? Well, I think I think for for the moment, the Green Party, you know, I would like to see a party that says very clearly to people, we care about your job and your economic future as much as we care about the natural world, and that the policies we need to support your own economic security and the welfare of the water and the and the dolphins is the same. And unfortunately, many people, you know, many small business people now are so angry at the green and the left because they believe that they're responsible for their hardship. So we have to make a huge effort to reach out to these people, you know, who have who have now, you know, they're being manipulated essentially by corporate interests. Mm to say, government, get out of the way. You know, yeah. the problem is the left, the problem is big government. Which is get rubbish. Get rid of government and everything will be fine. They don't understand that the real government right now is the big banks and corporations yeah. and yeah. that they are the problem. Now, Occupy did help to start spell that out. Uh-huh. So if you can imagine, you know, Occupy linked to the Green Party, linked to, you know, Greenpeace, that is what I think can and, and has to happen. And of course, it's you know there's quite a big movement concerned with CO2 emissions. You know, there's if if the linking doesn't have to be one mammoth organization, it has to be a hammering away on the need for economic policy change. Now, the good news also is that the sort of policy change we need is already being implemented by community groups at the grassroots. And so I'm, you know, what I'm calling that new economy direction is localization instead of globalization. And uh, my organization and I first started, I think, that discussion of local economies, localization. Um, You know, we were pioneers of that, you know, sort of 30 years ago. It's about decentralizing. It's about realizing that if we have a multitude of smaller businesses they will fulfill the functions that are needed more efficiently in terms of resources and more humanely, more socially responsible, more accountable ways. And if we have a multitude of smaller cities, instead of pulling everyone into a few suburbanized sprawls, which, by the way, I just stop to say, you know, this sort of mega-urbanization is directly linked to this corporatization of our lives. When you are Monsanto or, or McDonald's, for that matter, and you want to be sure that people eat your hamburgers instead of eating food from farmers in the area, you want them concentrated in a few um, enormous urban centers. You can't deliver to millions of towns and cities. Okay, well, I'm going to interrupt you, Helena. I'm interviewing Helena Norberg-Hodge. It all sounds great, but how are you going to do it? And give us examples of 
of it being done because I don't know. I mean, here's Sydney, a huge city in Australia, three million or more, yeah. and we're building it up. So they say it's much more efficient to live in high-rise yeah. apartments. Like New York yeah. is a very efficient, energy-efficient yeah. city because yeah. everyone uses everyone else's heat and the like, and they travel yeah. by subways and stuff. Yeah. How the hell are you going to diversify Sydney into small communities? One and two. Give us some examples of yeah. how it's done and well, what happens. Well, first of all, some of the examples are that already now at the grassroots, people are taking you know things into their own hands. And one of the fastest growing social movements is the transition town movement, which is essentially a localization movement where people are starting as a group, not as isolated consumer individuals, but as groups starting to do things differently. One of the absolutely most important parts of that movement, which is a bigger movement and which, which we help to start, is the local food movement. It is growing exponentially. It grew in the United States just last year by 17%. And it's led to the New York Times literally quoting a Microsoft manager saying the future is local. What part of the significance of the local food movement is, first of all, is to understand what the global food economy is doing. Mm. You know, we are being separated literally day by day from the sources of our food mm. in this global supermarket. Describe how. Describe Sorry? how. Describe how. How, how we're being separated? Yes. Well, because our governments, by supporting, by signing on to so-called free trade treaties, right now they're pushing another one, the TTT, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, they're committing themselves to allowing foreign investors and foreign corporations to come into our economies. They are subsidizing the infrastructure, you know, like expanding the port in Melbourne, expanding the superhighways, the straighter and bigger superhighways for the giant lorries that carry the stuff back and forth. They are expanding also the satellite network that allows Walmart to keep its fleet of lorries on the ground, uh, so the whole the the whole technologization and infrastructure build up is funded by our taxes, well, and it destroys small businesses and helps the Walmart and the big banks. Well, I'll give you an example because we need to look at the carbon footprint of our food. You know, in Australia, we always grew our oranges and our grapefruit and our mandarins and stuff. Now, for God's sake, we're importing oranges from California, if you please, right. and from Brazil. Right. And so the farmers in Australia are plowing in their fruit trees and destroying them because there's no market. I mean, that's obscene. Yeah. And the other thing is that often in our supermarkets in Australia, this is an example, the tomatoes, the tin tomatoes, canned tomatoes coming from Italy are actually yeah. cheaper than the that's tomatoes right. exactly. we can buy from Australia exactly. because they're being subsidised by multinational corporations in Italy. Right. And that's it just right. makes me feel like vomiting. I mean, we're yeah. and on you know, this is Again, this is something that I've witnessed in Ladakh. You know, yeah. butter comes from the other side of the Himalayas up over the Himalayan mountains, selling for half the price of local butter. Really? I then studied this phenomenon around the world. Mm -hmm. found Kenya, Dutch butter costs half as much as Kenyan butter. Mongolia, where they had 25 million milk-producing animals. You couldn't even find Mongolian butter in the market. It was German. Really? In England, New Zealand, butter costs a quarter of the price of the butter from our local farm shop. Now, 
The thing about this, this is why the stepping back and looking at it globally is so important. When people only see it from a local or national perspective, then they start thinking only in terms of government. They, they, they don't see the corporate hand behind it, and they don't see the solutions so clearly. So literally around the world, local farmers, and it's not only farmers, it's virtually every producer, if you make pottery or something, you're being destroyed by, you know, yeah. pots coming in from China. Yeah. And this is a global problem. And the swapping of identical products, that's what's happening. We are literally wasting our precious energy, using our nuclear power, polluting ourselves to suit the needs of corporations. You know, if, if people were eating food from their region... Um, millions of producers and smaller businesses would make money, but no multinational would. And so this swapping is linked to the growth and power of these giant corporations, and it's linked inextricably to the CO2 emissions that threaten life on Earth. What about so we, what about cooperatives in society where people... Well, I yeah. mean, I know what's happening in America and the Rust Belt where the auto companies are going broke. Um, local communities are actually moving into those factories that are vacant now and developing their own... Uh, products and stuff and selling them locally and owning it together. Isn't that a good way to go? It is. I would just um, I would just argue that when you look at it globally, one of the elements is scale and, and localizing as much as possible, trying to shorten the distances and particularly, of course, when it comes to food, when it comes to industrial products, it's fine to have greater centralization and these co-ops are a good thing, but the, the to see the systemic differences, we need to look at scale and distance and the local and regional as part of the solution. And there, even private enterprise can be fine as long as it's not too big. Mm. There are giant co-ops that are supposed to, you know, they are co-ops, oh. but they oh. are operating in a way that is both environmentally and socially completely unsustainable. Uh, so it's not a question of just, you know, co-op versus private. Private can be, you know, like just think of a, a small privately owned family farm or a family restaurant or, you know, people who've seen things in Italy. I mean, there used to be shoe factories, furniture factories, mm. engineering companies, mm. restaurants. There had been family owned and run for literally hundreds of years. And they did not have to get bigger and bigger and bigger and more global to survive. Mm. The main mechanisms that were set in place after the Depression are the ones that have led to this explosive, cancerous growth in corporate takeover of our lives. You know, it started happening a bit after the First World War and then, you know, really was set in place with the Bretton Woods Institution the World Bank, the IMF, and the GATT. The GATT was a really important part of... That was the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. And that's what forced governments to remove any of the hindrances for big foreign banks and, and companies to come into local economies worldwide. So that was a real cancerous virus. And well, Helena, Helena, as you talk... The problem is so vast, it's like I'm thinking now medically of a body that's uh, full of metastasizing carcinomas in the brain and the liver and the lung and the spleen and the 
bones. How do you get rid of these people? How do you get rid yeah. of these corporations? I mean, let's be pragmatic because as a doctor, I only worry about the cure. You know, we can talk about little cooperatives and local farmers markets, but that's like, you know, curing a pimple on the nose of a patient dying of cancer. How the hell do we cure the cancer that's metastasizing around the world that you've just described so eloquently, Helena Norberg-Hodge? Yeah, well, I think the, well, the the important thing about these farmers markets and the these small things that are growing is that they are demonstrating graphically and in you know the real world that you can literally increase productivity on the land dramatically. But I'm talking like sometimes tenfold and even more. I mean, there are some family farms in the third world where they've shown that they, you know, they're literally producing a thousand times as much per acre mm. as a giant monoculture. Mm. So what's important is that we need to get it through our minds that many small makes big, and it makes big in a way that is sustainable and that reduces our ecological footprint. Now, not only does it do that, but it also allows for more meaningful work. You can we can increase the number of jobs, the number of I'd like to call you know meaningful work and livelihoods, massively while reducing our ecological footprint. So the, the the important thing is to really study what's going on in the localization movement. It's incredibly inspiring, and more than just studying it, we need to join it and support it. So right now, people can actually benefit from many of those small initiatives. Farmers markets, you know, when I started them here in the Byron area in Australia, you know, people were saying, oh, Helena, you don't understand. In Australia, local is never going to work. You know, we've just got these giant farms. The fact is that in Melbourne, in Sydney, you know, around Australia now, the local food movement is gaining ground. And, of course, it's still nothing like enough. No. But if people can help support that while getting together, and understanding that this needs to be a policy shift. At the moment, the reason I feel you know, very inspired by it is because I know, I have worked to help build these things up. I know that we have had not a word of support from the media. We've had not a penny from government. We've had opposition from corporations. We even had opposition from farmers who just didn't believe that it could be so beneficial for them. Consumers, same thing. They would say, no, 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 I want the supermarket food. I like to have strawberries the year round. Uh, you know, don't, don't talk to me about, you know, local farmers markets and things. Despite all that opposition, these initiatives have grown and flourished and they're going from strength to strength to the point now where also Time magazine in the last issue is actually talking about economics. Mm-hmm. Now, they are talking about it from mm. the point of view of big business. Really? They are, noting, they are noting that people are beginning to demand a shift, and they're noting that governments are beginning to talk about regulating the banks. Uh-huh. But, of course, we have to be alert enough to realize we don't want Walmart to come into our country or local area buy the potatoes from the farmer and then sell them to us and all the time Walmart is making a profit globally, we will then 
not have democracy. We'll still not have a right to determine our future. Well, how do we do in Walmart? How do we how do we do them in? I mean, they need to be done we in. Do them in <laughs> we do them in in the way that until this mad viral growth in free trade treaties, every country had the right to protect its jobs yes. and its environment. Yes. It didn't open up to giant foreign corporations. Yes. You see, they've managed to twist people's minds into thinking that it's xenophobic or racist to not want foreign corporations. So do we reintroduce tariffs again? And, yes, and, we do. Well, we how do. do we do that? Because our, our well, politicians are so pathetic. Well, we do that because at the moment, we, we, you know, the agenda has not been articulated. Uh-huh. There's no movement. We need this new economy movement uh-huh. that gets enough people behind it that actually spells out those tariffs are going to help you for your, you know, your children at the moment have not a chance in hell to get a decent job. I mean, look at what's happening economically. We've got desperately and urgently to link that economic impoverishment to the environmental impoverishment. But unfortunately, the corporate influence is continuing to fragment and to set us off against each other. We've got to work against that, and that's what the localization movement is doing. I mean, at the local level, you have situations now where when people start getting together in the community to work to support the local businesses, you actually have right and left coming together. You have environmentalists and people who were pretty anti-green coming together. It's actually happening at the local level. It's very encouraging. But in the meanwhile, you know, one of the big problems, of course, is to persuade people that they've got to devote some of their time to changing policy. Because in the meanwhile, the policy rearrangement that our governments are involved in is horrific. I mean, you you see it, Helen, you know, with the changing the levels of pesticides that are allowed in our food, you Mm. know, changing, you know, the statistics and the numbers about how, you know, what is is bad for us in terms of radioactivity. You know, it's the the sort of dance of death that governments are playing with corporations is... Dance of death, the dance of death. Yeah, dance of death. I like that. And it's what I call, it's, it's also what I call a drone economy. It's a drone economy because part of what makes it so monstrous is that the owner, whether it's the you know the the CEO or the investor, they don't see the impact of what they're doing. They can sit comfortably on the other side of the world while they bombard other economies to smithereens, while they use labor in a way that is completely unacceptable you know, gouge huger holes in the ground for mining. The long distance structurally prevents ethical uh, behavior and accountability. The shorter distances are not a guarantee for ethics. They are a guarantee for accountability. Things become more visible. Mm. And so the, the shorter distances are key. The scale is key. How how can even we as consumers, you know, if we want to be ethical, almost without exception, first of all, the, the good green product, whether it's clothes or food or furniture or cars, whatever, is costing more. So you've got to be rich to be ethical in a system that subsidizes the unethical. So I think, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I've said enough about what people can do, but I, I do hope that people will see that part of the activism needs 
to be spending some time to really, well, I would say right now to study the localization movement and to study the reasons for it and why it's um, demonstrating so effectively that we can both increase economic security and environmental protection simultaneously. It is an amazing win-win strategy. I mean, what happens... You know, to a farmer, like a farmer told me here some years ago, he said, I've been a farmer my whole life. And it was like being a serf. He was delivering to the huge middleman in the in the big city mm. and the, all the time pressures to reduce cost and to deliver a standard product, the same size. Mm. That goes against nature. Mm. Nature does not produce apples or potatoes the way we manufacture rubber balls. But that's what we've been doing to primary producers in fishing, farming, forestry. Complete madness. And now he said when we open the farmer's market, he said it's like a different galaxy. It's just a joy. He loves talking to consumers. He's now growing 23 different things instead of two different things. That means with global warming and the vagaries of weather, by having 23 different things, he has an insurance policy that is worth more than anything that you know that you could have. You know, if you've got hail, it doesn't destroy everything. If you've got wind, it doesn't destroy everything. You've got a, a new fungus or a new mite. The diversity is a principle of life. Mm. Well, I know, con- I know. In my garden, in my garden, I've decided to plant flowers and vegetables and fruit all together. So yes, I get packets absolutely. of seeds which cost practically nothing and I broadcast these seeds over my garden and I, I compost everything and I've got a worm farm and so the garden is well um, well sustained and fertilised and things are growing like crazy. I've got broad beans and peas all growing together along with poppies and daffodils and kale and lettuces and uh, uh, sorrel and and ca- carrots and everything all growing together yeah. in profu- yeah. f- profusion. So nothing gives me more joy than going out and getting my vegetables for dinner, knowing that they are not sprayed, they're not pesticided, they're not damaged. But, you know, yeah. even if you live in an apartment or a flat, you can, on your veranda... You can have boxes and grow an enormous amount of food in a very small space, can't you? Yes. And, you see, when I talk about the local food movement, I'm talking about this huge wave of interest in doing just this. Mm. You know, you've got community gardens, you've got urban farms, you've got school gardens, you know, edible gardens at schools. And in in the UK, you know, the sale in vegetable seeds and so on has been skyrocketing in the last years. So all of those small things are adding up to something that's getting bigger and bigger by the day. And we need to join that. We need to support it. And remember, it's both about if we grow something ourselves, you know, growing something from a seed and watering it and growing it, it may be one of the most spiritually rewarding Mm, things we can do. It's a lovely thing. It is. And, and, you know, I know psychotherapists now who are actually – working with torture victims, mm-hmm. with people with all kinds of deep, serious problems. And when they help them to garden and connect to nature in that way, sometimes in the wilderness 
and also linked to this productive activity of growing, are they finding huge and and um, I mean really the the most effective therapies include that from all my experience. And you know the big problem that we have an economy that is subsidizing using a pill instead of allowing people to care for each other in that way. To have you someone antidepressants have a work yeah. you know, work with youth in this way or with alcoholics or drug addicts. We can't afford it as a society because we can't afford the human labor. We can't afford the human care, the human intelligence. So we're being sort of strangled into an economy where we can't afford ourselves. Well, the, other, the other thing yeah. to do, though, is, is, you know, in the winter in America where you can't grow a thing, you know, the pioneers and, and the people who, who, the Puritans and the people who first went to America, they would bottle their beans and, and salt their yes. beans and, and, and bottle their fruit and everything yes. so that during the winter they always had food to use that came from the previous yeah, crop in the summer. Right. And I think we should start doing that as well to provide for ourselves Absolutely. without having to go and buy strawberries yeah. from Brazil which have a carbon footprint which increase global warming which means our children don't have a future sort of thing. Yeah. But also just quickly that there are amazing benefits from greenhouses. I mean, we introduced greenhouses in Ladakh. We worked with passive solar Mm. ways there of demonstrating this sort of middle path using some renewable energy in a mm. decentralized way. The greenhouses are amazingly effective. I mean, you can have things growing in there in the middle of the winter, yeah. fresh greens. And, you know, also about bottling, there's a whole new awareness that um, fermented foods are really necessary for healthy gut flora and so on. So the bottling that uses fermentation is actually really good for us. So the combination of some greenhouses and and preserving foods, drying foods also, you know, drying fruits yes. and all kinds of vegetables works really well. And there are some amazing restaurants, like I can't remember the name. There's one in Minnesota that a woman started and where the food is completely local throughout the year. And they are, you know, gourmet restaurants, you know, loved by everyone. But the key thing about all of this too is that if we devote a little bit of time to building up the movement for policy change, mm. then worldwide, the local, the fresh, the healthy, the organic would be cheaper and there would be fuller employment. You know, at the moment, our taxes and our subsidies support using energy and technology instead of employing people. So that just shifting those taxes and subsidies overnight could alleviate the problems we have. It would shrink the power of the corporations, but it would empower the 99%. And I also just want to add that when it comes to localization, it's not just the food, which is the most important. We need to focus on that. You know, the sort of top eight priorities need to be thinking about food. But after that, there's also in terms of energy, there are now community projects that are bringing in local energy, decentralized renewable energy. There is local banking and local funding. Mm -hmm. um, Michael Schumann is an economist I work with who has written books on this and who's involved in project, projects throughout the United States. He'll soon be here in Australia as well. And so what 
And by the way, even the uh, time piece, which is so dangerous because it's being written, you know, in effect by big business for big business, but it actually makes the statement, which is what we've been doing for these 30 years, that when the banks are smaller and more local, mm. they are more responsible. Mm. And that's, that's what's happening. You know, you, we had a trade in toxic debt where the people who are trading don't even know anything about what it is they're trading. Mm. You know, it's like, that's what I'm calling the drone economy. You don't see the impact of what you do. So the insanity of the speculative economy where we allow people to gamble with our lives, and in effect, we are, we are gambling ourselves because we're allowing our pension funds to go into that, and they are part of that game of roulette that comes back and hits us. Yes, it can sound too big to change. It can seem that way when we first think about it. But when you realize that here is a way of bringing together the social and environmental issues, that the very same policies that we need in order to support economic security are the ones that we need for environmental protection. When that becomes clear, it's very empowering. In the, in the long run, I'm sure this is what's going to happen, but I just don't know how long the run's going to be. Well, Helena, we've run out of time on that really rather optimistic note because when we first started, I thought that it's just too big. But you've brought it down to a micro level where I think we can all understand and be inspired and get stuck into growing our own food on our balconies, on our verandas, in our gardens, Um, and being very excited, I think, and micro banking and local co-ops and working together I, I you're very inspiring Helena and I thank you so much for this and I'm sure people will be thrilled and then they won't have to take their antidepressants because they can get out their <laughs> gardens <laughs> yeah yeah and and you know there's the business alliances I mean there's a lot happening so I hope people will uh, you know, look at our website That's and look right. at our film, The Economics of Happiness. It lays out these arguments. It's now going into 20 languages, which I also wow. find really encouraging. You know. Wow, It's only been wonderful. out for a year. Yeah, That's but, wonderful. Yeah. Well, um, thank you very much for being on the program. Thank you for my lovely dinner the other night when I was up in Byron Bay with you. Yeah, and local food. Yes, and I send yeah. my love to everyone in Byron Bay and to you. And thank John, and, uh, and thanks once again for a wonderful interview. Thank you, Helen, and thank you for all of your work. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. My guest today on If You Love This Planet was Helena Norberg-Hodge, founder and director of the International Society for Ecology and Culture based in California. Thanks for listening. I hope you're all very inspired and we move together towards a future of happiness and joy and working for each other and for ourselves to make a cleaner, healthier planet.
You've been listening to If You Love This Planet with Dr. Helen Caldicott. This program is broadcast on community radio across the United States, including our host station, KPFT Pacifica, Houston, Texas. This program is produced and engineered by Jazz Williams, co-produced by Scott Powell, and our publicity and outreach are coordinated by Amanda Bellerby. To listen to previous shows or to make a donation, go to our website, ifyoulovethisplanet.org.